You are listening to Insight, the University of St Andrews Physics Society's podcast. Join us as we journey into the world of St Andrews academics, discovering their passions, inspirations and motivations. Hi everyone, welcome to an interview with Dr. Bernard Branacher, um, who works at the University of St Andrews Physics and Astronomy Department. Uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we normally sort of start off by discussing what uh, our interview's positions and path into those positions at St Andrews are. So um, I guess what positions in the department do you hold and how did you get to St Andrews? Well, I'm a, I'm a lecturer here in theoretical physics and uh, I think the, the main part how you get a position is you get a job somewhere mm-hmm. that you end up in is the place where they offer your job and that's uh, how I ended up in St Andrews. Mm. So so what what where did you work before previously in Before that I was in Spain in Madrid, which was just one at uh, place of, of many places before. So I I, I travelled around from actually be doing my PhD in Switzerland, going to the US, coming back to Switzerland, going back to Spain, mm. and then finally coming here. And were you, were you always working in the same sort of uh, field, or have you shifted a lot? It, is, it was always condensed matter physics. It shifted a little bit fields, so between several, say, the subsections. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I never can tell you really what you're working on. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, always shifting a little bit to the left and the right. Yeah, it, it looked when I when I was looking at your the work of your group online, it looked like it was mainly it was quantum materials. Yeah, it's, it's most it's, it's always has to do with quantum and had always to do something with interactions, but then you have the side that goes more more towards quantum computing. You have the side that goes more towards the sort of traditional electron interactions. Mm. But I think what's most interesting is when you bring sort of the both sides together and, and ask what's an interface between two different systems, what is it doing? And how does it, with interactions, modify the physics? And then as the next step, how can we actually, when we understand the physics, how can we twist somehow the conditions such that the physics does what we want to do? And this is pointing towards this quantum information process and computing thing. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I saw that it was, it, on, the, on, the, on the page, it was talking about shifting from understanding materials to beginning to design materials and so one thing I was curious was to what extent sort of are we able to design materials? Yeah it, it's the I think this is a change we have seen in, in, in all this field in quantum physics that for the say first hundred years we were very happy with trying to understand what a material is mm. well we have a material then we want to understand what's going on but uh, now somehow the demands have shifted that we actually want to use quantum to make actually computations and processing. So can we use this knowledge now that we have acquired over 100 years and sort of twist it around and say, if I want to have that and that property, what actually does my material need to fulfill and how can I design a material to go there? Okay, what, what kind of properties are we able to... It's, uh, if you want to do a theory for quantum computing, what you need to do is to have a well-defined quantum state that you sort of keep in a well-prepared superposition of, of your uh, initial states plus some entanglement with whatever and you want to keep it as long as you want and you want to when you want to manipulate it you want to do it in a way that is deterministic 
And that's sort of the stuff that doesn't work with a quantum state because it always interacts with the environment. It always mm -hmm. runs away immediately. We call this decoherence. So what we want to do then is to isolate it as well as possible from the rest of the world. But when we isolate it, we can't manipulate it. And the moment we manipulate it, we, we make it dirty and noisy again. So it's a sort of a stuff that really doesn't work. And you need to find sort of a compromise between keeping it and then isolating it and trying to manipulate it. Manipulate in the sense that I, I want to take this, let it interact with some external fields, and then it makes some, say, rotation uh, or, or change in entanglement that I can use then to make a quantum algorithm, for instance. Very interesting. Okay, so yeah, it's about limiting the impact of the environment on it until you want it to have an impact. Yeah, and the environment usually is considered something quite bad. Yeah. What I'm trying to figure out is whether we can actually use this bad and make something good out of it. And that's a part of the of the research we do. I see. So yeah, because it looked like the um, at least within within your group there were that seemed like quite a broad. Obviously, it was all on the same topic. Quite a broad uh, number of things that you guys were working on. Yeah, it's, and, and, and this is one aspect of, of um, trying to understand how a system interacts with its environment and then how the environment actually feeds back on the system and whether out of this feedback one can actually get some interesting physics. Mm. Whereas in the, say, what I just described before is the interaction with the environment is really bad. It just destroys your state and, and uh, you never get it back. Uh, we're trying to figure out it's really short time scales at least there's some quantum coherence between them can we actually get some information back or can we use the information there to actually actively cancel noise noise cancellation on the environment or something like that mm. and then uh, we have no idea actually but uh, we're working towards it interesting so is this is this work mainly um theoretical or is it experimental this is uh, purely theoretical okay but we're trying to put in always realistic systems and parameters and such that we don't say do something which no one is interested in. Mm. How how do you find that the sort of dealing with the boundary of doing theoretical work but always trying to think about the realistic situations? Well, I think the first thing is you need to put in numbers. So you need to get good numbers from experimentalists or, or, or from the papers. Best is always to talk to someone and give you some idea of, of what the numbers are. Mm. Numbers would mean typically temperatures energy scales, compare them with each other, how strong is the coupling from system A to system B. So it could be a magnetic coupling, could be a charge something. And then we try to put them in and make some sort of, if I twist it to be to the left and the right, and within some limits, what can I get out of there? Yeah, that, that sounds, sounds certainly like fascinating work. One of the points of the podcast is, is, is learning about the academics themselves. So. What, what particularly was it about this, this type of work that really appealed to you when you were going into physics and, and I guess why is it still, why do you find it interesting to this day? Well, I think it's about how you grow into it. Yeah. So as a student, you essentially sample what is offered locally. Mm. So, so you, you have to choose your, your master project and your PhD project and then essentially you have this knowledge of who is actually in your university to whom you can talk. And, and uh, then you end up in some corner. Out of this corner, you, of course, the moment you start working on something, or the moment you start working on anything, it becomes interesting. And then you, you have to, the possibility of shaping it yourself. And uh, once you're done with that, say with a PhD, you, you have to choose what you want to do next. And there are 
two options you can make. One is the topic, the other one is the person. So with whom do you want to work, to work or on what topic do you want to work? Mm. Then, well, it has a third part, which is actually the, the one covering everything, is who is giving you a job. <sighs> and and so, so the first two options essentially are deciding on, on where you apply and uh, then out of all those things, someone will offer you a job and then you go there. You change a little bit your orientation or you continue, or, but you, it always, let's say you have a framework and then within the framework you choose your path. If you, if you'd say, if you continue with that, you choose a path that uh, makes your life interesting and, and it gives you also the opportunity of continuing then. So it's essentially, it's a random walk directed by your interests. Mm. And, and this is how you essentially you end up with some, some specific research topic or field of research. It's absolutely not predictable. Mm. Yeah, have you, have you found that one, uh, choosing the topic versus choosing the person has, has appealed to you more throughout? I think I've all optimized mostly with uh, what, what would be an interesting research group to be. Okay. But then you have also constraints. So, so at some point you have a family that sort of needs to be kept together. So for instance, I moved to Spain was because uh, my wife is an astrophysicist. So mm. she was in Germany. I was in Switzerland. We had two children. <sighs> she got a job in Spain. So I went to the University of Spain and knocked on the doors and asked, if you, do you have a job? And so this was place and person. Related, but of course, I, I from the topic I chose and which doors I was knocking. What what prompted the move to Salamis? Was there anything particular? Well, I got a job. Ah, okay. <laughs> and and uh, she, she she got also a job later then. So so she's in Dundee now. Ah, perfect. Very handy. So, well, I guess I guess this is kind of just talking about your your move to St Andrews. Is there is there anything you found about the sort of academic environment at St Andrews? Um, that's perhaps unique for individuals and has other places or countries you've worked in? I think what is pretty unique here is that we are small and we are, let me phrase it like this, we are small and we have to be good to be, to survive and, and on the field. Mm. So which means there's a sort of friendly competition with a, a, a small group of very, very good colleagues. And uh, this makes it quite unique because uh, everyone knows everyone. We know what everyone is doing and, and we have a lot of support mutually and, and a sort of mutual stimulation. And I, I think that's a quite unique place with Samson Andrews. Have you, have you found that the, the teaching has been different place to place? So, the, yeah, the teaching is also different. We are quite intensely teaching here. Mm. Other places are more relaxed about it relaxed in the sense of uh, not providing so much of the quality. But of course it demands much more time here than the teaching center. Yeah. Is, is that when, at what point did you start teaching? Is this when you did PhD or later on? Well, it's a PhD or with tutoring. Yeah. After that, depending on which position I had, I was allowed or not allowed to teach. When I was allowed to teach, I just chose it and then it's, well, it's, it's nice to, to First, transmit what you know. Second is, when you have a module and you teach it for the third time, finally you start understanding it yourself. I see. Yeah. So, so, so I think it takes about three times until you're really safe and, and, and you can actually use it much more freely than, than mm. you have before. So, so it, it gives you quite a number of, of uh, advantages. And, uh, 
but of course after a few years you just want to switch to something else yeah well i think one one thing that i was i was very keen to ask um that ties into this i think quite well is it is i think it's always fascinating asking teachers what makes both a good teacher and a good student um, and so i was interested to hear your perspective on that what makes a good teacher and what makes a good student that that's a mean question <laughs> it's uh let me start with a good student a good student is someone who is asking you the, the, the ugly and mean questions mm. and uh, which just tells that they are thinking about it and then they, they want to understand. Of course, that may be quite tricky sometimes because especially if you have very fast progression in a module, it's very hard to keep the pacing as a student. Mm. And, and so it's very easy to be disconnected at some point. And once you disconnect it, you, you don't really feel like you're ready to ask. My suggestion is ask anyway, because uh, first it gives feedback to the, the, the teacher that uh, it may go too fast or something hasn't been explained correctly. But the other part is where you really learn, and I think this is the good teacher aspect of this, uh, where you really learn is not from the, the core topic itself, but from the side remarks of the lecture. I see. And, and because then you try to make cross-links and, and all of a sudden there's just one sentence that makes something clear which you have been wondering about, which is not written in a book, which is not written on the, on the script or something. And so, so if, let's say, I as a student profited mostly from that. So now as a, a lecturer, what I'm trying to do is to be extremely chatty. I see. It may be a bit too much sometimes, but... Uh, not just to give you the core information, but just to, to, to make a link to the left and right and tell you well, this appears here, this comes here. Also, quite a lot of those, those material we're teaching is actually pretty old. You, know, you have to, to go through all the mechanics, so you start from Newton. Mm. You, you have to go through, through lots of things from the 19th century. And uh, before you actually can enter the stuff that, that brings into 20th century, but still quantum mechanics is 100 years old. Where and what of those things is actually important for, for modern research and modern technology and so I was missing this quite a bit as a student. So what I'm trying now to do is essentially always to make a link to, to what we, why we're using it nowadays. Mm. I think in it may be sometimes a little bit too much, but if you maintain 20% of what I'm saying, I'm very happy. I, I think that's the main part. It's not, it gives, gives you too much information, but at some point you're getting used to it. And I think the, the, the understanding comes after getting used to it. Yeah. Do, do you find it kind of um, hard to sort of battle with just, just from, I guess, personal interest level, having to go back and look at things that sort of, I guess, I guess you probably covered quite a lot, especially if you've taught module many times, uh, versus dealing with the battle between that and the sort of current research you're doing, which I'm sure, you know, is fascinating on a day-to-day -day basis. So is, do you find it's, it's nice to have that balance of, of flipping back and forth, or do you find it difficult to... to it depends. Away? So, yeah. so, so the, let's say the disadvantage of teaching is that it has to occur at a specific timetable mm -hmm. where you may be very excited about something else. The advantage of teaching is that it forces you to be in a strict timetable such that you don't get uh, run away and, and uh, get lost in, in uh, the clouds and uh, outer space. I see. So, so, so let's say it keeps you a bit grounded, but 
there, there are these very intense teaching times where you don't have time for anything else. Mm. That's quite tough sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, that'd be maybe an interesting thing to discuss, which is sort of what what would you say your day to day looks like? Like what, what do you do during it, day? It depends how much teaching it's because the teaching, as I just said, is is, is giving you this very rigid frame mm. of of uh, well, I mean, you have to show up in class at a certain time. Yeah. And uh, you shouldn't be late, or you shouldn't be too early either. So, so, so when when you have a lot of teaching, then if the, the, there's a, a scattered teaching schedule, I think this is very very hard because you go in, you do something, and then you have only a short break where you can't really do start doing something else, and then you go back to the next lecture. This is a structure of a day where where you essentially fill the holes and the gaps with sort of routine tasks. Mm. So if you have something to mark, then you mark it during that time. If you have days where you have more freedom, then it depends quite a bit of what is the current research topic. So, so if one of my PhD students has something, say, exciting, complicated, and we want to write up some publication, for instance, then you just reserve a lot of time just to work on those topics. If there is something sort of intermediate, then you try to figure out what is actually something new we can do. You, you go around and try to explore a little bit with the, the, the literature and, and mm. the new environment. So, so the daily schedule is essentially governed by some boundary conditions. And within those boundary conditions, you try to, to essentially to figure out what is the, the, the best research or teaching activity you can do there. Since it's theoretical physics, it's, uh, say, office-based. There's not much of a machine that can break. So, so it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's to overcome some either analytic or computational issues or, or challenges and, and then try to analyze actually what goes out, comes out of those. Mm. A lot still is pencil paper. Do you, do you find it's difficult to um, stop thinking of the things when you go home, is it like maintaining work-life balance? How, how do you find that as a theoretical physicist? Um, you can work wherever you want, so quite a bit of work is still done at home. Sure. The thing is, the the moment the children are awake, yeah. While it used to be quite intense in, in uh, a few years ago when they were pretty small, now they're growing all up. Nice, but essentially, when when I'm home and everyone is there. There's not just I, 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 I'm forced to disconnect because otherwise it just doesn't work. Mm. What we uh, started doing actually is uh, when all the children have been in babies is uh, to get up quite early in the morning and then you have a few hours in the morning just quietness and, and, and you can some decent work. Yeah, so essentially afternoon, evening is not much going on and uh, most of the things are shifted to the morning hours. So, but work, work, life, family balance is, is uh, uh, everyday chaos. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's never, it's never quiet. It's, it's always, well, sometimes you miss it, sometimes you don't. Um, For sure. It's, it's, uh, every day is a bit different. Mm -hmm. There's not much of a routine there. Interesting. Do you, do you, what would you, what would you say is something that, um, the thing you like most about? Uh, working in the industry, working. You mean working at university compared with working any any other job? Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, as an academic. As an academic. Oh, or a physicist, even specifically. Well, 
Well, I think academic probably generally. It's it's. Uh, I, I I define myself what I want to do. Yeah. It's uh, probably it's not the the stuff that everyone wants or can do, but I think when you end up in an academic position, it is the type of work you actually like doing. So so. Find your own interesting questions and try to solve them. Mm. I definitely think that's a, that's a good thing to say. Is there is there anything you would you would perhaps change about academic work and and the way it sort of is run? Well, there's there's uh, it's always the balance between how much do you have to do with teaching and how much do you have not to do with teaching. Mm. Sometimes the balance is towards one side and not towards the other side. And there are periods where this is pretty demanding. And uh, which then also means that you you extending your day time, well, most of the morning time for me, in, in, into quite a bit of intense working patterns. That, with the years, becomes tougher and tougher. <laughs> But I don't see any way of, 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 of changing that. So, so it's not the optimal thing, mm. but uh, I don't know how, what would be needed to be done to, to actually change that. But let's say it, it's, um, sometimes this is a tiring part. I see. Otherwise, just to have the freedom of working on whatever problem you want to do, it compensates quite a lot for the, the extra boundary conditions. Have you, have you found that? Cause it, you're um you're you're in charge of a research group now on yeah. St Andrews. Have you have you found that's changed your ability to do that? How how much impact would you say that's had on being able to work on the things you want to work on? It's uh having a research group gives you an advantage that uh, you can actually outsource some of the work. Um, it's one of the the parts that probably everyone starting a research group underestimates is how much time it takes actually to train your group members. I see. So, so for a PhD, it takes typically a year, a year and a half until they're really, really up to speed and running. Mm. This is uh, uh, well, it depends on the person. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a quite quite um, at a time where where you you may have new ideas, but you can't really fulfill them yet because uh, they they or you can't delegate them yet in in for full duty mm. because. Uh, there's still a lot of, of um, how to say, techniques and, and uh, methodology to learn from, from, from new group members. And then, of course, once they're really full up and, and uh, productive and, and have all the expertise and, and know everything uh, perfectly well, they finish the PhD and they leave. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but well, uh, how to say, that's the game we play anyway, but, and, and it is uh, very good because that's the goal of having actually a PhD. Mm. It's uh, but um, it's um, a sort of time delay where mostly focus on ideas. So if you have, well, after many years of experience, you can just often just sit down and do something. But if you don't have those many years of experience, you need to sit down, learn the basics, mm. and a few weeks or a few months later, you can start with that. So there's a it's a time delay always in there. And I think that that's the difference when you work just for your own as a, say, postdoc or, or you actually have a research group in which the tasks are distributed. There's, a, there's always a time lag in there. So, so for, 
as, as someone who's, who's both been a PhD and a postdoc mm-hmm. and also now has a research group, do you have advice for people who uh, are maybe doing a PhD, advice for them going into a research group and, and how to sort of be the most productive as soon as they can or, or deal with that environment? Well, if you are a new PhD and you want to start in a research, well, let's say first choose the, the research group on the topic you're most interested in. Mm. What you should then look for is, is a good environment. So, so there are typically other group members around. So, so profit from discussing everything with them. And the other part is to, to be as open as possible to say, admit that there's a lot of things to learn and, and ask. And uh, I think when you do that, then it's the, the, the best start you can have. Yeah, don't hesitate to, to ask actually what would be the best way of doing something and, and uh, if someone else has actually knowledge about it. And the moment this is sort of going all directions with, with the communication, then, then it's one of the best preparations and second is also one of the, say, psychologically best situations because otherwise when it doesn't work and you have no idea what's going on, there's always a level of frustration coming in. Mm. And uh, a PhD brings you always to a limit. And, and uh, let's say if it doesn't bring you to the limits, then uh, it's, it's uh, not correctly done. See. But uh, if if it brings you to the limits, of course, it has a huge potential of being extremely frustrating. And uh, in that case, it's really necessary to to talk to everyone. First, other PhD students have experienced exactly the same thing. And second, is your supervisor actually should give you a hand there and and, and helps you and gives you the necessary extra information or. or the, 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 how to say, the, the, the small push that, that mm-hmm. brings you out of, of your hole. I, I think my recommendation is just to, to ask, to communicate, and when it doesn't work, ask again. Great advice. Now maybe moving, moving slightly away from the, the world of academia and research. Um, do you, oh, it sounds like you've got a very busy schedule, but I, I was wondering, do you have any time for... Um, for hobbies, perhaps, or, or, or sport, or things like that, outside of your work and family life? Yeah, it's a lot of music. Music, oh, okay. So, so, we have, I don't know, 20, 30 music instruments at home. Oh, wow. And I'm mostly playing piano. Mm. So, so that's a, this, this sort of good distraction and, and good balance with, with everything else that goes in. Do you, do you play all the instruments, or...? Yeah, I, I play, well, let's say one is play and the other one is trying to play. Yeah. I sort of went into a habit of uh, when I was traveling far, I tried to bring back a music instrument. Mm. And, then, and that's, yeah, this has led to some quite interesting acquirements. So, so I, I, I got a, a, a sort of pear-shaped guitar from... Uh, from Taiwan, and and uh, I, I got also a, a long uh, string instrument from from Uzbekistan, a guitar, mm. and and that's quite interesting to first to buy those, and second is just then at home to try to, to get some decent sound out of them. Do you, do you sort of figure it out as as you go along, or, or 
I yeah, really luckily like there's also YouTubers yes. who know how to play. <laughs> and and uh, but it's it's quite often just to to have a bit of pleasure, just trying to figure out how things are going. What what is it um, in particular that you enjoy about? I, I guess learning to play all these all these different instruments is is it relaxing? Is it just stimulating? I think it's mostly way? curiosity. Okay. And and it's also if if you try to make some music, it's it's uh, to, to try to learn how some specific instrument reacts. It's, it's a quite interesting experience, and I don't want to say development or figuring out how things are going. Mm. Yeah, it's very cool. And every instrument has its different sounds. So, so even even say if you have a piano and a different piano, two pianos are different. So, so in principle, when you start trying to make some music on one of them, you can't just transmit the way you play one piano to the next piano. So, so it's uh, it's quite interesting to, to just to figure out is with the special special characteristics of a certain instrument, what is the nicest way of actually getting a nice music out of it. Mm. What's your favorite type of things to play on the piano? Mostly, I just sit down and improvise something myself. Oh, fun! Okay, I, I like um, jazz or just. Well, probably it's nothing specific, so it's it's sort of a mixture of everything, and um, it it also develops. It's uh, it has some its own evolution. Mm. So so, uh, my wife tells me that I have a certain style of of making some sounds. But I, I think it has also evolved over the last 20 years. It, it sounds a bit different now. Fascinating. Uh, another, another question about, I guess, your life. Uh, is, have, uh, were there any sports that you used to do when you were a child? Um, or, or still do? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, a variety, actually. So, so when I was younger, let's put it like that, I used to sail quite a lot, on the dinghy sailing. Right. And... and uh, play also a bit of squash. But then children came mm. and then you completely reset your, your, your life. So what we're doing then is mostly just to try to figure out what could be interesting for everyone. And uh, well, mostly running up the hill behind the house yes. or, or going ice skating. What we took up a few years ago just to make something completely different is to, to learn the unicycle. So uh, that's a quite interesting thing. Thing yeah. again, because you need to learn completely new, newly learn how to, to, to actually sit on a bike. Mm. Um, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's lots of falling off at the start as well. So maybe. No, the interesting thing is you have some sort of instruction manual and they say well, oh, it okay. takes about five, six hours to learn. Well, not at my age. <laughs> so, so, so three years in and I'm starting to, to not fall off too, too, too much. Do, do your kids ride it as well? Yeah, one of my daughters wants to do it. The other two sort of, they, <laughs> they don't want to. <laughs> wow, yeah. I, 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 think my, I think my dad used to ride a unicycle around. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, definitely seemed rather difficult though. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, the interesting thing is that you somehow learn how your neutrons are, uh, neutrons, neurons, I'm, I'm too much. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you learn how the neurons are working actually in your brain. Because at the beginning you have absolutely no equilibrium, no, nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, you don't completely. But then, then somehow, the next time you go up or you just make a break of two weeks, you come back up and it works. 
So, so you're just noticing how, how something in your brain has sort of wired up differently and now all of a sudden you can do that. Mm. And then you can try the next thing and of course you fall down again. And, and but, but it's this sort of rewiring of your brain that I have actually observed so much with the, the children when they just came out of the toddler For age. Sure. And, and it, was, it was never something continuous that you observe in the small children. It's sort of, they can't do it, they try it and then they know how to do it. And it, it's not that it's sort of, I, I know a little bit and it becomes better, but it's sort of always a, a disruptive learning effect. The interesting thing is with the unicycle, it it's, happens even at our age. Yeah. Uh, that, that it's this sort of disruptive thing. It's, it doesn't work at all. You let it away, come back a few days later, and then it works. And you have no idea why. And then you try the next thing. Mm. and, and uh, so that's actually the most interesting thing with this unicycle part. And uh, I wasn't aware that it's, it still works with adults like that. Yeah, for sure. That's, yeah, I, I, it's certainly uh, learning new skills always. So it's quite a fascinating ability that we seem to have. So, so the next few questions I, I wanted to ask were, um, we, we, we call these our quick fire questions and they're sort of generally a bit more uh, short questions, uh, although feel free to elaborate wherever you want to. Um, so. The first one is where where is your favorite place in St Andrews? Probably in my office. But <laughs> it's uh, in St Andrews. I like walking through the the, the town and uh, go into the small shops and buy stuff. Mm. And, uh, there's nothing really saying this must be the one. This is fine. Uh, it's uh, I always like the food from Convinico. Oh yes, very much. And uh, and, and, and visit at Roca. Uh, <laughs> let's put those in and make good advertisers for those two. Um, well, do you have a favorite food? My next one I'm cooking. <laughs> I, th I think just from, from I, I'm, I'm baking a lot of bread myself. And, and probably then you can say the favorite food is the, the experimental yes. bread that comes out next. It's, uh, but uh, otherwise, it's uh, nothing specific. I see. Definitely very interested to hear the answer to this one. What, do you have a favorite music genre and a favorite song? I need to give you a very strange answer to that. Perfect. Is I, I prefer music, or I like music, independent on the genre or, or whatever it is. Mm. If I can identify something that I can only s say vaguely describe as, as has some character. So it is some sort of, you, you see that people who perform it really like it. And they have given some thought on it and they have worked on it and it's, it comes out as a product that is nicely made. Mm. And, and uh, so that could be from uh, medieval music up to, to heavy metal. Uh, in, in between you always find these sort of gems that, that, that really stand out and make a really good music. Mm. Is, there, is there any particular song? No. Comes to mind? no. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite genre of book? I think it's the same answer with the music. It's it's if it is, it has some 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 character in it. Yeah. So so it it could be a a nicely written novel. It could be even some some pretty dry phone book. It's a. Uh, well, actually, phone books don't exist anymore. But uh, right. we, we we actually used to to read some of them. It was quite amusing sometimes, <laughs> especially when people still were writing professions with it. Mm. But. but I think it's it's a book is um, I got lately a bit in in, in reading the Finnish author Mika Vatanen, and uh, 
there's one thing that probably comes in which which keeps the style of, of what is interesting, which is uh, a sort of telling a story because of, of the sake of the story, not of trying to, to teach people something. Mm. And, and it's the same with the music. It's, if, if it's something where which just to see that people had fun in, in producing and uh, did it in such a good way that it's transmitted, then it's, it's a captivating experience. And I think this book super is the same. Uh, yeah, I think I do agree with you there. It's uh, not so much the genre, but the, the characters and plot involved. If you could, this one I always actually, this is probably my favorite question that I always like asking. If you could change one law of physics, what would it be? If I change the law of physics, probably the universe collapses. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, so I would be very, very reluctant touching any, any digit and any of those interactions. No, I wouldn't change any. I see. Don't, don't mess with something that works, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Never touch a working system. Yes, exactly. Well, that, that, that's, that was the last of the quickfire questions there. Uh, and so, so just one final question, which is, I, know, I mean, to be fair, we've touched advice quite, quite a few times throughout. But I guess, let's say, let's say an underground aspiring researcher, do you have any advice for them at that stage as just a young person looking to work in academia in general? Working at in academia or just working in general uh, with both, background, I think, yeah. yeah, as a one works. Because my my recommendation is try to figure out what you really like, mm. and then try to sort of take a a, a, a sort of guided random walk towards it. Mm. What I'm saying is that very often you don't find the dream job you want to have, but if you take something that is close enough. And if you do it well, it will be very interesting. So, so I would say follow your nose. Don't hesitate to change if you if you are unhappy or you think something would be more interesting. And uh, what wherever you are, try just to to make it as interesting as possible. With the background we're giving you in physics, that should be pretty a pretty good background, a pretty good basis for for actually being flexible and, and adjust to many situations. Mm. And uh, with physics, we, we sort of train people to be all-rounders with a lot of methods. So my, my, my recommendation is take those methods and use them for whatever you have fun. There shouldn't be sort of a, a external pressure of uh, you should do this and this, but uh, just follow your news. I think that's, that's definitely great, uh, great advice to end on. It's been, it's been really great talking to you. Um, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to Insight, the University of St Andrews Physics Society's podcast. Thank you to our wonderful interviewees for sharing their thoughts and insights. This podcast was produced by Muse McKennon, Veronica Sedlakova, and Michael Stanway. Find out more about the Physics Society and what we do. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or search St. Andrew's Physics Society for our website. Goodbye.